0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say that we have Brian Ballow on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, A Government Out of Sight, The Mystery of National Authority in 19th Century America. Everyone knows that Americans don't like, quote-unquote, big government, right? Well, maybe. As Brian points out in this book, It turns out that Americans just don't like big government that they can see. From the founding of the republic in the 18th century through the 19th century, Americans constantly called on the federal government to do this, that, and the other thing, or rather to give them the resources that they needed to do this, that, or the other thing. The important thing was that the Fed didn't come, but that the Fed sent resources. Uh, This is a terrific book, and I think it should be widely read by conservatives and liberals and everybody who argues about the nature of state power in the United States. You should go out and buy the book and read it. Uh, Also, you should listen to uh, Brian and his colleagues on a radio show that they have uh, called Backstory uh, with the American History Guys. It's probably on your local NPR station. If it's not, you should call your local NPR station and ask them why it isn't. In any event, here's the interview. Hi, Brian. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for calling. Yeah, well, uh, it's my pleasure. I should tell our listeners that we have Brian Ballow on the show today, and we'll be talking about uh, his terrific, and I think sure to be somewhat controversial book, A Government Out of Sight, The Mystery of National Authority in 19th Century America. It changed the way I thought about 19th Century America. I don't think a lot about 19th Century America, certainly uh, not as much as uh, O'Brien has, but It turns out that I had many misapprehensions about 19th century America, most of which I got, um, as Brian I'm sure knows, from reading the political press. You really can be misled by reading pundits. Those people, don't read them. When you turn to your opinion page, don't read it. It I'm telling you, don't read your opinion page. Um, But I wanted to say this because we often talk about the weather here because the weather is very eventful in Iowa, as any listener to the show will know. You've had a blizzard there? What's going on?
1: We are in the midst of a blizzard.
0: You're, you're in Virginia. Uh, yes,
1: we are, we are in Virginia. Early stages. Somebody told me that we've had more snow than parts of New England so far this winter. Holy cow!
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I've you know I used to live in DC, and I can tell you that the snow is very beautiful in that part of the country when it happens.
1: It, it's beautiful as long as you don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, right.
0: that's, yeah, that's true. That's true of snow in general, I think. Stay put if you're in the snow. So be safe, people of Virginia. That's what I say, be safe. So, Brian, why don't you begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself, that is, where you're born, where you come from, where you went to school, that sort of thing.
1: Sure. I was born in Carl Gables, Florida in 1953. And uh by the time I was a uh, second or third grader in elementary school and public school, uh, I was one of only two kids who had actually been born there uh, hmm. so you get a you get a, a sense yeah. for how quickly Miami was growing at that at that time and I um went to college uh, at Harvard. Um, where I learned to deal with snow like the snow we're (laughs) having right now, and when I was in college, I was uh, not a history major. I was a, a government major, and I was very interested in politics, and Uh, I had this mistaken notion that, you know, political science had something to do with politics, and uh, I I was (laughs)
2: disabused
1: of that notion very quickly, Uh, but I was fortunate in that there were a number of professors there, especially uh, a man who passed away recently, Sam Beer, Mm -hmm. uh, who who took historical approaches. Uh, To the understanding of of politics. I was very taken by that approach, but uh, my parents had not gone to college. Uh, I was the first one in my family to go to college. And uh, when my honors thesis uh, advisor, a man named Larry Brown, Lawrence Brown, wonderful guy, uh, when he asked me where I was going to graduate school, I said, graduate school. <laughs> Why would I ever want to go to graduate school? I mean, the thought has simply never occurred to me. Uh, okay, so, and now I'll pause as we lose half your listeners.
2: No, right no, now. no, not at all. Uh,
1: uh, but, but it's true, I wanted to go into politics, not uh, elected office. I, I wanted to be the power behind the throne, mm-hmm. and I was very interested in local, state and local governments, and I was fortunate enough to get my first real job right out of college uh, working for the uh, Massachusetts Welfare Department. In fact, I did the income maintenance budget, mm-hmm. uh, the old Aid to Families with Dependent Children Program, and then the state-funded Home Relief Program. And that was in the first Michael Dukakis administration, mm-hmm. uh, governor of Massachusetts. And I loved it. Uh, and I loved learning about welfare. I remember the head of the budget office, uh, a man by the name of Ralph Mueller, was uh, ABD uh, in economics at Harvard and had a photographic memory and... Mm not only knew the whole welfare budget had it in his head, he knew the whole state budget had it in his head. (laughs) And he said, you know, this is not just about numbers. You have to know the programs better than the program people. So I remember lugging home six binders, you know, stacked on top of each other that came up to my waist, you know, six foot five uh, of policy, you know, kind of eligibility requirements. And every night when I'd get home, I'd go through those regulations to kind of understand uh, how you qualified for the various welfare programs Mm because one of my jobs was forecasting welfare caseload, a notoriously Mm -hmm. risky business. And so I did that for a year and a half. Uh, I uh, had a partner at the time who worked with Russian immigrants, and she got a... You know, she got a job in the, uh, the found of all work with Russian immigrants in New York, and we, we moved, uh, together to New York City. And I did some budgeting work, uh, in New York City for the Financial Control Board. I worked for a politician, uh, Harold Bellamy, who, uh, mm-hmm. was city council president, uh, a job so essential to the, uh, welfare of the city that they eliminated it a few years <laughs> later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, worked extremely briefly for the Board of Education. I worked for the uh, Vice Chancellor for Business Affairs uh, and literally handed in my resignation on my first day of work. But the Chancellor convinced me to stay for six months anyway. Mm-hmm. And then uh, ran some welfare programs in New York City. Um, which I did for two-and-a-half years or so. Mm-hmm. So by this time, I was almost 30 years old. I can assure you I still hadn't thought of graduate school until I was maybe 28 or 29. And fortunately, and maybe this will mean something to some of your listeners who are in college, but fortunately I did have that experience of writing an honors thesis mm-hmm. and doing primary research. Uh, and I love that. Um, and so I kept thinking about that, and I started actually trying to figure out how we got um, this big bureaucracy in a political culture that ostensibly hated government. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, uh, you know, I really didn't do anything with that, but I thought, well, maybe I'll take a night course in history, and I took a course at night at NYU and... I had a pretty demanding job, and I managed uh to miss every class <laughs> <laughs> and in, in the what truly must have been the huts of the year award, I show up, lovely man, business historian, Vincent Caruso. I show up literally the last night of the class, after the class meets, and said, I'm really sorry I had to miss all your classes, but I'm thinking of going to graduate school. Where, where should I go? And uh, he said, uh, I, I told him I'm interested in large bureaucratic organizations and in the interface. Between public organizations and private organizations. So, i was interested in the process of bureaucratization. And he said, Oh, you, you know, you, you really have to go work with this guy named Lewis Galambus at Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, sorry Lou, but I had never heard of Lewis Galambus. <laughs> And here's more embarrassing, I'd never heard of Johns Hopkins University, (laughs) which I I guess says something about Harvard undergraduate education. Um, uh, But I I looked into it, and I applied to a number of places, but in fact, Hugo Ambas ended up really being somebody. He was best known as a business historian, as an economic historian, but he also did political history, and he turned out to be absolutely the right person for me to work with given my set of interests and he also turned out to be a just a terrific graduate advisor and mm-hmm. the Hopkins program was very good. Uh there was only one problem, which was there are no jobs in history. Mm-hmm. And I, I did, uh, everybody told me that I started in nineteen eighty two at Hopkins and uh I honestly expected to come back to New York City and uh either Either commissioner of a small agency like ports and terminals or the deputy commissioner of a large agency like sanitation. And I figured, you know, I'd be the his best historically informed deputy mm-hmm. sanitation commissioner in the world. Um, but I was lucky uh, and I was able to get a job. And my first job uh, in academia was at Harvard, uh, where I was in, a, in the history department, where I was an assistant professor for four years, uh, and then was fortunate enough uh, to uh, get a number of different offers. And um, the UVA, one, was the most attractive for a number of reasons. And uh, I've been at UVA for 19 years wow. and never never looked back. And one of the great things, aside from having a very strong history department, uh, I got connected with the Miller Center of Public Affairs about 10 years ago uh, when Philip Seligo came to be director. He had read my work. I didn't know Philip, but he said, you know, he asked me, what, what should the Miller Center be doing? And one suggestion I gave, and Philip had lots of ideas of his own, but one suggestion I gave Philip was to start a national fellowship program. He mm-hmm. it was a terrific way to build up intellectual capital. And the Miller Center has been very generous in its funding of a fellowship program, which is now in its 10th tenth, tenth year, and we have funded 90, uh, 90 nine zero, uh, fellows uh, from some of the best history and political science and political sociology programs in the world. Uh, the fellowship is for people who are in their last year Finish at their dissertation, if any of you fellows are listening, that means you better finish your dissertation this year
2: <laughs>
1: and uh these folks are now um, you know those who started ten years ago are now publishing their second book they're getting tenure and mm-hmm. reading uh departments around the country and I did it primarily uh as a way to help revitalize political history, which at least in u s history was it somewhat of a low ebb Mm -hmm. when I was in graduate school and uh, went through some tough times in the 80s and early 90s. I think it's it's on the rebound. I don't take credit for that, but I do think uh, that not only providing the financial support, but but providing the networks, uh, the camaraderie, uh, and the intellectual exchange the Fellowship Program has provided, now 90 strong, uh, has had a, a little something to do with the revival of political history. Then about three years ago, I got involved with two good friends, Peter Oniff and Ed Ayers. Uh, at the time, they were both at the uh, University of Virginia, and um, uh, Ed now is president of the University of Richmond. And we started uh, this odd... A program called Backstory with the American History Guys. So we had this really weird uh, conception. I should say Andrew Wyndham had the conception that uh, people would like to hear the three of us talk about American history, mm-hmm. even call in the question. And uh, the show has really taken off. We now have been aired in 37 different states. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we are hoping, uh, with a little help from the NIH, uh, to be able to go to a weekly schedule uh, mm-hmm. in the fall and get a regular spot on NPR stations. We now offer, we do the show once a month, and uh, it's been picked up in a lot of big markets, but you know the way NPR works. You you, you kind of need to provide weekly content to really own mm-hmm. one of those five. Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh,
1: well, I was going to say,
0: obviously, I, I really applaud that initiative because that's, kind of what we're about here at New Books in History. We're about getting people to listen to other really smart people talk about historical topics, and you certainly are one of them. Um, I I, uh, I would encourage everybody to tune in if you can, and uh, if you you have the opportunity uh, to talk to the program directors in your local – Mark, it's to ask them about the show and ask them why it's not on the air because I really feel that Brian and everybody are doing God's work here. We have a weekly schedule here on New Books in History, but I don't imagine we're going to be appearing on NPR. Uh, but you guys do, and that's terrific. And I really, I really hope that you get picked up. Uh, I hope you get picked up everywhere because, you know, as we were kind of saying in the pre-interview, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions running around about uh, history, and history is pretty widely read. It's actually a strong part of um, most. Uh, Publishers' catalogs, but nonetheless, I think that uh, you know we really need to. Historians need to, and we're under a lot of pressure to do this here in Iowa. I'm sure you are in Virginia as well to kind of get the word out. Uh, I'm I'm hesitant to use the word popularize, but nonetheless, we need to make our 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 scholarship. And our research accessible to people, and so I really applaud. I, I agree,
1: Marshall, and, and I want that. to thank you for for what you do along those lines. And unlike us, uh, you allow your guests uh, a little more time, and you, uh, frankly, dig much deeper.
0: Well, um, yeah, but I have, div- I, have no constri- I, I, I have no constraints. <laughs> I have no constraints. Could, we could talk <laughs> for five hours if you wanted to, and I imagine there are probably six or seven people who would listen. Um, <laughs> If you want to get an idea of what graduate school is like, just listen in to what follows, <laughs> because
1: Brian, right. I are about all to- you need to do is add, all you need to do is add the coffee.
0: Yeah, exactly. But we're about to have a really interesting conversation about something, and so let's actually move right on to the book, um, Government Outside. How did you come to write it, and why did you write it? I
2: decided
1: to write this book, Marshall, uh, completely accidentally because I was actually in the middle of writing another book, or the early stages (laughs) of writing another book, I I was going to write a book about how we got big government in the 20th century, and I should make it very clear to your listeners that I am a 20th century historian, uh, even though this book is set almost entirely in the 19th century, the last part of the uh, 18th century. And in looking at, I was going to look at you know, four paradigmatic state builders, uh, Gifford Pinchot, Herbert Hoover, David Lilienthal, and then the guy who ran NASA during the Great Frontier, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Webb, not uh, our senator from Virginia, James Webb, uh, different Jim Webb. And, you know, I'm an historian, so at least I've become an historian. (laughs) And (laughs) I decided to write a short introduction that in 15 pages uh, summed up what we understood about the 19th century baseline. If you will remember, I told you I used to be a budget analyst. So, I said, well, you know, I'm going to talk about the growth of big government. We got to start somewhere. Let me let me sum up for the reader, kind of where what the starting point was. And I figured 15 pages because what was there really to talk about in the way of the national government? you know, it just didn't do that much from my understanding of Mm -hmm. the literature. And I started digging into the literature, uh, and I should say that in graduate school I did a field in what was called colonial history at the time with uh, Jack Green. And so I had a, a somewhat aging but not terrible grasp of the literature on, you know, British North America. Uh, But I really knew very little about the middle of the 19th century, a bit about the Gilded Age, because that's generally where 20th century historians start teaching Reconstruction. And the more I read, uh, and especially uh, some of the newer literature, people like Bill Novak, people like Richard John, uh, um, the more I recognized that, boy, you know, the government was actually doing a lot. Now, there's quite an old literature on the government doing a lot called the Commonwealth literature, uh, people like Oscar and Mary Hamblin who talked about what state governments did in the way of economic development. So I was aware of that, but I was I really wanted to tell a national story and I just didn't think there was much to talk about mm-hmm. when it came to the national government. Oh, boy, was I wrong. So I, I thought, gee, you know, I'm a pretty decent, pretty well-read historian of 20th century America, especially political history. If I'm really not on top of it, if I have such a misunderstanding of governance in the 19th century, maybe others could benefit from me laying out this story.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I don't think that that would have been enough <laughs> to write the book. <laughs> what really, uh,
2: what,
1: what really decided it for me was the work of a man who used to be at the University of Iowa, uh, maybe still is, uh, Ellis Hawley.
2: Mm, He's
1: retired. And uh, Hawley uh wrote very influentially about uh, an idea loosely called uh, the Associated State, uh, where the national government played a role, but not in a um, highly visible bureaucratic fashion, not in a hierarchical fashion, but as a stimulator, as a coordinator, uh, working in conjunction with associations, uh, trade groups, interest groups. Uh, And that's a literature that I was always attracted to, but it was very much confined to the 1920s and then uh, a bit of the early New Deal. And the more I read uh, about 19th century political development, the more I came to believe that some of the patterns that Hawley saw in the 1920s, early 1930s, had much deeper roots. And and the more I came to believe that for much of American history, uh, this hard and fast line that those political pundits that you talk about uh, draw between the private and the public uh, really was not the case. Uh, Now, it it was very much not the case when it came to local and state government, and private actions, public actions, blurred all the time through an issue like railroad subsidies. Uh But it turned out that even at the national level, these boundaries were not nearly as clear-cut in the 19th century as I had thought. So I decided uh, to try to write that story of what the national government actually did and how it affected the lives of Americans uh, over the course of the 19th century, even though um, it never had a huge... It never had a budget that was a large percentage of gross domestic product, and it never employed uh, hundreds of thousands of civil servants as it it does today. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the book that I ended up writing. In the mm-hmm. in yeah, that's a pretty typical
0: – for those of you who don't know, that's a pretty – I was – I was going, none of us are typical. We're all unique in our own way, yes. But uh, that is a pretty typical story of starting off to write one book and then writing another. I think I've done it three times now. <laughs> I, nev- I, ne- I never write the book I want to write. I write that – that 15-page introduction should wait for the uh, end of the book, you know, because you should really – if you start with that one, you're going to write a different book. You're just, that's the trouble. <laughs> See, I started. I was thinking I was going to study Soviet history, and I ended up in the 16th century. So I really was, wow. Kind of that, of, is
1: a, that is it. That
0: is it. That is. P- that was a problem. That was really not. Uh, yeah. That was that was that was my own weakness. I think I was trying to trace things back, and that's that's madness. But in any event, you have a a really interesting chapter in here uh, about. How Americans you called how Americans lost sight of the state, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because you're right. This isn't the conception that we have. If you read those pundits, they'll um, talk about the 19th century state being extraordinarily weak, a kind of night watchman state that they didn't infringe upon what we would call civil liberties. I don't know what they called them. That it really was a kind of uh, it was a it was kind of a ghostly presence among a universe of uh, very powerful federal states. But uh, but but we lost sight of that. How, how did we do that?
1: Well. To to tell that story uh, and to use that title is to suggest that we once did have sight of the state. Uh, Now, to be sure, this was much more of a smaller republic uh, and much more of a local, smaller local community than you know today's bureaucracy, so perhaps state is uh, not exactly the right term. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this has to do with what some of your listeners will know to be a Republican, small r, Republican ideology. Uh, It has to do with notions uh, that virtuous citizens uh, could be trusted to do quite a bit uh, with political authority. It actually has to do with a very a fundamentally different conception of what the polity is, a conception that sees politics coming first, the rules of politics framing social relations, framing economic relations, rather than our understanding today, which is very much grounded in, uh, social relations determine the kind of government we have, or economic relations Mm-hmm. of the kind of government we have. Uh, this goes back to the Greek republics uh, revitalized uh, during the, this notion, revitalized during the Renaissance, and this was the worldview of many of the leaders that went on to become our founding fathers. Uh, for your listeners, I think the key point here is a couple of key points. Number one, uh, there were a very small number Of such citizens, Uh, and and by that I mean a very small percentage of the people who lived in what would become the United States were really citizens in the sense that they could vote, that they were uh, uh, allowed to hold office and make decisions. All of those folks were were white guys, now dead white guys. Uh, And so the, the, the notion was that these virtuous men, virtuous because they were not dependent uh, on business, they were not uh, dependent on certain interests, they were not interested, they were disinterested, could be trusted uh, to make all kinds of decisions uh, about uh, governance, and they governed in a way that was... um, pretty forceful. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had all kinds of very powerful social regulations about what one one could do, what one couldn't do. Uh, They had no qualms about uh, taxing uh, people, and of course, uh, not just in the South, but uh, in many of the colonies, uh, there was slavery, which is, one could argue, the most forceful form of covenants, at least from the perspective of the slaves. Uh, and this was the kind of political ideology, this was the kind of policy uh, that we emulated uh, in the United States and, and emulated Great Britain in that. And of course, uh, in the United States, there uh, before um, the Revolution, uh, we were uh, an appendage of sorts of uh, the British Empire. And so we were part of this larger commonwealth and we felt ourselves very much to be that. Uh, the way we lost sight of this is in a raw country uh, where labor was short, uh, where there, in fact, was not a landed gentry or a very small and pale, uh, in the double meaning pale version of that. Um, interest and self-interest uh, from almost the very beginning of this American experiment was very much in evidence uh could easily uh, be seen. And very soon uh, Americans uh, began to talk more explicitly about their self-interest and began to um, were attracted, for that matter, to ideas uh, portrayed by the common-sense philosophers, people like Adam Smith, uh, and began uh, to question uh, this notion of the uh, disinterested virtuous citizen and began to demand a kind of more literal representation of their own interests. And along with that, and of course along with developments in our relationship with Great Britain, Came an in increasing distrust of those who claim to be acting uh, for our benefit on our behalf. Uh, you might say it was somewhat of a "show me the money" attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you 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 should get your interests out front. Um, people do have interests in order to ensure. Um, that one is not taken advantage of. The safest thing to do is to have less government and certainly uh, less distant government. That was most applicable to Great Britain, uh, but it also from the start, was very applicable to the national government in the United States. Mm -hmm. No,
0: I mean, I think this is an extraordinarily good point. I really enjoyed this chapter a lot. I thought it was very insightful because it shows that uh, Americans are really a little bit conflicted even to this day about our relationship to, on the one hand, classical republicanism, which really requires a lot of citizens um, and does put politics first, and this kind of Lockean notion of Uh, individual liberty in the marketplace and freedom to participate in politics if one wants. They're really very different. You shouldn't confuse, you know, Plato and Rousseau on the one hand being sort of classical Republicans and Adam Smith and Locke on the other because they are saying quite different things. Um, And I think that one, one of those visions has really come to trump the other today, especially in the conservative movement, and that is the, the sort of Lockean liberal, the one based on the market, that, 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 that um, t- to a certain extent, except concerning the military, for some reason, people in the conservative movement are all on about the military. Uh, right. That doesn't ex- count. That doesn't count. Yeah, except for that, they, they really are all Lockean sort of uh, get the government off my back types and let me do what I want. Um, but I thought, I thought it was a, a really nice chapter and a really nice evocation of the confusion which comes of... I think, not reading these things carefully. Classical republicanism is a is – a, uh, we, we don't live in a classical republican state, and I think we should be glad we don't. Um, you know, if you want to look at a place that took politics and put politics first, you can look at the Soviet Union. They attempted classical right. republicanism, and it ended up looking like Plato's Republic, which would be a disaster. Well, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and, and um, I, I would agree with that. Uh, to, to just uh, uh, be more concise about, you know, if I didn't name one factor that – really destroyed the illusion that undergirds classical republicanism. It's uh, the easy availability of land in uh-huh. the United States. Yeah. So that everybody, if you were not enslaved, uh, everybody could at least aspire to own land. That meant that, uh, you know, and land was in, in uh Let's say in the the country, the Whig Party in Great Britain, it it was this kind of landed, disinterested gentry that was the greatest hope for disinterestedness, for virtue. Well, in the United States, uh, that was exploded pretty quickly Mm -hmm. because common people uh, could own land or could at least aspire to owning land. And once they did, they expected uh, to be citizens, and uh, as you know, uh, certainly within the first couple of decades of the 19th century, the folks started voting and started participating, and they had a much rawer sense of what the right should be, uh, what being a citizen really meant. And they committed the ultimate sin, and this was true even of Jefferson and Washington and Adams, um, they committed a cardinal sin by the um, strictures of republicanism. They created political parties.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: The right. ultimate tool for creating dependence, uh, the whole key to that uh, republican. Uh, Ideal, as you as you well describe it, is this notion of independence. I'm not economically dependent. I'm not dependent on somebody else's else for their opinion, and that's that. That was the danger of political parties. It's this notion of all these independent citizens, and given the conditions in the United States, quite quickly uh, we lost the sight of that state. I I got a lot of grief about. That. I'm glad you liked the chapter. Thank you. I got a lot of grief about it because, you know, frankly, Republicanism in current studies of uh, British North America, colonial history, it's a bit passe. Uh, the literature's a bit old. Eighteenth-century uh, uh, guy on my radio show, Peter Onus, uh, you know... I had I throw out at least 150 pages on republicanism because of deep
2: skepticism,
1: uh, but, you know, I I ended up retaining it because although it was never realized, in fact, never close to realized, it was fascinating to me. I guess I had retained enough of the political theorist in me from my undergraduate days, not that I ever understood political theory, but... It, it was fascinating to me that there was a period in this nation's history in which people felt that politics defined the universe rather than being a subset of other powerful forces, such as social relations, Mm -hmm. economic relations, or even psychology, Uh, that there was, you know, in the very architecture of the way people thought, there was this notion that politics was primary mm-hmm. and so I wanted to start the book that way to remind my readers and your listeners sound like they uh, for my sense might be the kind of people who would be interested in this oh yeah, I wanted to remind I wanted to remind people that there was a time when there was a very different conception of what politics meant, and how it defined all aspects of one's life, even though on the ground, it was clear that these people were self-interested. They would be talking about Republican virtue at the very time that they were angling to, you know, build Washington, D.C. in a certain spot, because that would help their landholder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yet, their framework. For understanding politics was so different than our kind of interest-driven or partisan-driven. You can mm-hmm. fill in the blank, but it's it's a kind of materialist-based understanding of polity today. And to me, that was fascinating. To well, me, no, that I, was, but, yeah, I, I agree I, I, I wanted I wanted to start the book. Uh, the whole world of the 19th century was quite alien to me, but this earlier, late 18th century American conception of the polity truly was uh, different. It was never realized. Uh, But there were many people who wrote about it, who thought about it, and I think used it as a framework through which to try to to understand the world they lived in. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, I think that's right. If you look at, uh, and again, I could be talking out of my hat here, and I'm sure that one of my listeners will correct me, but it's even true if you look at the people that they quote. The uh, the, the I don't know. Do people say the founding fathers anymore? Is there a more political correct term for that now? Founding fathers. Okay, founding fathers. If you look at the, their heroes. They're always quoting Cicero or Cicero, as my friends would say. Exactly. Uh, they're not exactly. quoting. T- they're not quoting Locke. They don't care about Locke. They want to quote Cicero because he, he was a great uh, sort of uh, 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 sort of advocate of classical republicanism. They love this language. They they can't get enough of it. It's not really until. Kind of the mid nineteenth century, I think, and they and they still don't quote Locke; they quote Mill. That Mill becomes everybody's right. hero. Uh,
1: that's that's a great point. I think the AM radio uh, corollary to that point is that they're quoting Cicero, but they're living Locke, <laughs> that's and right. that, yeah. that's 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 really the the tension that sets my book in motion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to say that. I'm as, going as, as my personal motto. I quote Cicero, but I live Locke. That's pretty much me in a nutshell. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I mean, it is. You know, I regret that I had one life to sacrifice or give to my country. You know, it's it's not. I regret I have one life to sell to my country if the price is right. That's not uh, right. That's a, Yeah. So anyway, let's go on. What is the You talk about the developmental vision. What is the developmental vision?
2: The developmental
1: vision, in many ways, is a conception. Uh, and this is a far less formal conception. This is a, a rather than uh, this Republican vision that we were talking about, which, as you just said, people quoted Cicero. It was very visceral. They read uh, these uh, Greek uh, statesmen, philosophers. Developmental vision is uh, the kind of term that we as scholars apply retrospectively uh, to describe a general phenomenon, and here, here was Here's the phenomenon. Most Americans, late 18th, early 19th century, don't believe that this country is going to hold together. They're looking at Europe where they see a much smaller continent that is being torn apart uh, by political rivalry and war. And they're listening to people like Turco, who are saying, you know, there's no, there's no way that the United States will devolve into uh, a series. Most people predicted three or four um, different federations that would compete with each other uh, by the early 19th century. Of course, slavery is sorting itself out. Uh, coming to reside seemingly permanently uh, below the Mason-Dixon line, uh, although you can still find pockets of it uh, above. And uh, that was another element that people pointed to. Everything suggested that this notion of a nation that would ultimately occupy an entire continent was an impossibility Mm -hmm. from everything they understood. Those were kind of the internal tensions. Then, of course, there were the external threats. Uh, The United States had a small military. Uh, The French Empire, British Empire, uh, had designs on large portions of that continent. In fact, uh, uh, through the 1812 war, they owned large portions of that continent. And nobody believed that portions of the United States would not uh, kind of be hived off and ally with these very powerful uh, European empires. People who advocated um, this this uh, developmental vision, and these are people who, oddly enough, people like John Calhoun, uh, who was would become uh, a huge advocate of the Confederacy later on in Mm -hmm. his career, people like Henry Clay, uh, they had this notion, which would become the American system, uh, that if the country kept expanding, uh, and if rather than warring over slavery, no slavery, rather than warring over uh, high-tariff, low-tariff, the country could project its economic development westward, the country could grow economically without ever really having to sort out some of these regional differences, uh, and could finally... I mean, what did the United States, what did Americans have in common? One of the first things they had, and perhaps the only thing they had in common, before the Revolution, was that they were all British citizens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, after the Revolution, they certainly didn't have that anymore. Uh, And what they did develop in common were some common economic interests. So there was a common interest in exploring the land. Uh, Obviously, southern states hoped to open up portions for slavery, northern states had different visions, but everybody imagined that this this was to mutual be mutually beneficial, and of course, that surveying the land, exploring it, it, was one of the national functions, Lewis and Clark, most famously, but much throughout the century, really. Uh, all the way up through the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, this is a very important function that the national government performs and, and crucial to the maintenance of the union, if you will. Um, so exploring the land, then clearing or making the land safe. Um, right, The land was of no value for farmers or, or slave owners uh, if it was subject to Indian attacks. Mm-hmm. So the instrumental use... Uh, a lot of the fighting was done by local militias, but um, th- there's uh, one, uh, I think, very uh, penetrating interpretation of the difference between the North and the South, and, uh scholar by the name of Caden, who argues that part of uh, the reason uh, that Northerners developed a greater taste for a slightly more energetic government is that people in the Ohio Valley... Uh, were treated much more favorably by the U.S. Army than people in the South who never saw the U.S. Army and thought they were paying taxes and not getting their money's worth for it. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: At any rate, uh, the use of the military, first to fight Indians, and then later on, most famously during the Trail of Tears, uh, to clear Indians, to simply move them Mm -hmm. farther and farther west, um, was another very important national function. Uh, this was also part of this developmental vision of making the land safe. Well, first you needed the land, secondly you needed to make the land safe. It didn't do any good if you didn't have good transportation. A lot of the road projects and then later the railroad projects were funded uh, and subsidized by state governments, but plenty of them were subsidized by the national government as well. Even First, those Jeffersonians, and next, those Jacksonian Democrats who claimed that they didn't like the national government, they didn't like taxes, subsidized a lot of internal improvements, uh, roads, eventually railroads, uh, time of the Civil War, of course, and also uh, stream clearance, harbor building This became a very important service, the national government did, to try to link parts of Mm -hmm. the country together. And then, maybe most importantly, for the first half of the 19th century, uh, and here I rely on a scholar who just went to Columbia School of Journalism, but a terrific historian, Richard John, Uh, who writes about the importance of the U.S. Postal Service. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, we think about mailing a postcard. uh, But back in those days, it was obviously important for business communications. But it was even more important uh, for knitting the country together politically, letting people know that folks out in the Midwest uh, shared common interests, common political interests with people in the North, even the South. And we had a huge U.S. Postal Service. It was subsidized. Uh, um, newspapers and political news uh, was heavily subsidized. Uh, and, you know, travelers, visitors, people like Tuttle were were stunned to, you know, go to some Tiny town mm-hmm. out in the middle of the woods, and find people reading newspapers from New York City there, mm-hmm. uh, and that is I, I would say if there's
2: uh,
1: one uh, very important uh, na- again national uh, service that was provided in the first half of the 19th century, and of course it continued, but uh, its relative importance was not as big later on in this country, but that was that early sense of connectedness, mm-hmm. making people feel that they were part politically of a larger union was really important. At mm-hmm. any rate, at the height of the American system in the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties, uh the the playing out of this developmental vision, the notion was that clearing land, making land safe, providing transportation to land, connecting people politically good... I I call the Postal Service, uh, much to the chagrin of real scholars, I call it the CNN of its day, because (laughs) it
2: just
1: just delivered the news Mm -hmm. to people, and it was terribly important. And uh, um, all of that uh, sustained this vision of an expanding, you know, Midwestern, uh, agricultural belt, which would sell its products rather than exporting it as people had done down the Mississippi, etc., would sell it internally to developing urban centers. Those urban centers would become centers for manufacture and in industry protected behind a wall of uh, tariff protection and that you could create a great internal market with in the United States. This is not to say that exports didn't remain important. They were always terribly important for the South for the Civil War. Uh but you can see in that vision uh the the glimmers of in fact what would become by the end of the nineteenth century um, one of the great domestic markets. Um mm-hmm the history of such
2: things. Mm-hmm.
0: There's kind of an irony here as well because um, while the uh, federal government is subsidizing um, the settling of the uh, Great Plains, and uh, I can tell you that my people were some of those people so subsidized, they ended up in uh, Missouri and then Kansas, uh, all the while these uh, family farms are being created and this feeds back into this sort of Republican mythology because every one of those family farmers was Cincinnatus, back to the plow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and you make a great point, because uh, uh, especially, you know, and you'll still see uh, in what, you know, in the old Northwest, um, uh, what we now call the Midwest, you'll, you'll see all these towns named after New England towns, and, and those New England towns, and uh, and laid out the same way, and they all carried their Cincinnati's with them. Yeah, um, that's right. Right. Yeah, it's very funny. It's also
0: if you look at the, I had a professor once that pointed out. I might have pointed this out uh, before on the show. I'm sure it's been noticed and remarked upon by many American historians. But if you look at uh, cities in upstate New York, for example, they all seem to have Greek names. And so my this professor commented that the uh, founding fathers were um, aiming to recreate classical Greece, but ended up with Rome. <laughs> I <thought that> was <laughs> quite, quite right. <laughs> so um, let me let me ask about what would seem to be a. a uh, a real boundary case, I mean, one that is, is, would be clear from a kind of conservative perspective uh, in the 20th century, and that is uh, the military. I mean, I know from my experience as a European historian of the of the early modern and modern period that th- this was – the 19th century was precisely the time in which the Europeans were beginning to institute mandatory military service, and they were building up permanent armed forces and very sophisticated ones. And uh, America seems to have resisted this mightily. And so I think that um, conservatives would look back on 19th century military and say, well, this is a clear instance of Americans saying that they they didn't want this sort of state. They wanted the Fed out of the business of provisioning this sort of uh, uh, military force. How how would you respond to that, or why is that vision not quite correct? You you already mentioned the trail of tears and that kind of stuff, but beyond that.
1: Yeah, well, first I would acknowledge that this is, I think, a – big difference uh, between uh, the European, you know, fiscal military state, that all of the major European uh, industrializing nations have far more powerful, certainly more powerful naval navies and, and far more powerful mil- militaries than the United States uh, for much of the 19th century. So I, I you know, I, I, I think that is uh, a point of distinction. Uh, what I would say, however, is that and to underscore that point, I, I tell the story in the book about how to save money, uh, and I just think this is the first decade of the nineteenth century, uh, some general experimented uh with using cows as rather than pack horses because, you know, they could carry the load and then you could eat them. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, soldiers were always complaining that they were spending a lot more time growing vegetables than yeah. actually fighting Indians or doing anything. Yeah, there's, there's no question that Americans were very stingy about funding uh, a national military. What I would say is, number one, these that distinction tends to ignore the virtually continuous um, wars against. Indians that the u s military did fight from the beginning of the century all the way uh through uh, up to the last third of the century more or less uh and that uh so as a um in terms of a commitment uh to military there there was that and that tends to those those internal wars against military tend to somehow get forgotten because we're not you know, sending troops to other countries—we're not fighting foreign powers. But
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, you know, again, place names are sort of interesting here because if you come to the Midwest, many of the most prominent 19th-century cities all have the word "fort" before them. <laughs> you don't right. say "the
1: fort" anymore, but it was a fort well, a, that actually had a stockade. That, that. <laughs> well, well, that's very that's very good point. The other point that I would make is that. The military was very important uh, for maintaining order in territories. And uh, one of the points I make in the book is that where uh, colonies or states were formed, uh, Americans absolutely deferred to state and local government. But at any given time, a lot of the citizens living on the continent were living in territories. And those territories were ruled directly, uh, for at least long periods of their territorial history, directly from Washington, D.C., directly by the national government. Mm -hmm. And the so-called police force was the military. The military, I mean, if you look at the history of Louisiana Purchase, what all those people want, they want the military. And why do they want the military and they get the military? Why do they get it? They're not really worried about... um, The Spanish or the French. Uh, They're slightly worried about them, but what they're really worried about is maintaining order among the slaves that are moved Mm -hmm. to Louisiana. So the military serves a very important role. But yes, in terms of uh, size, in terms of numbers, definitely smaller Mm -hmm. than those uh, powerful continental states. What I, I think the most important thing to say, however, is uh, and conservatives well understand this, it's the exception that Americans make almost immediately if, in fact, they feel there is an external threat. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the best case in many ways are the Jeffersonians, who, of course, are ostensibly for small government. They oppose uh, the whole notion of debt and credit on behalf of the national government. They certainly are against tariffs or restrictions on trade. Yet, when things are heating up and the build-up to the War of 1812, it's Jefferson who imposes an embargo. Uh, and once the War of 1812 uh, actually starts, it's Jefferson who finances the war uh, through debt. Um, And he was actually very grateful that that was retained. The ability to issue debt was retained in the U.S. Constitution. And then after the war, it's Madison, um, who uh, reestablishes the Bank of the United States uh, in order to be sure that this kind of debt, which was used to fund the war, that this kind of credit can be extended uh, into the Hitler land, even though these Jeffersonians uh, had great misgivings about empowering the national government. Mm-hmm. So it's true, they never built up a huge military, uh, except in times of crisis, they really were willing to use um, extraordinary measures. Mm-hmm. Now, where we did, of course, build a, uh, a gigantic military and very lethal one was during the Civil War. Yeah, I was going to ask you about and, that. Uh, and, and um, uh, you know, but maybe it's not ironic. I've gotten so used to this, but initially I thought it was deeply ironic that it was uh, the Confederacy that is the first to draft people. It's a Confederacy that actually creates some national industries, uh, I say it's not ironic because the Confederacy didn't have the kind of civil society, uh, didn't have the degree of industry that the North was able to count on, uh, and didn't have the population uh, that was able to volunteer as they did in the North. But they both, um, the Union and the Confederacy, build up very, very powerful military, mm-hmm. and you know pretty much violation of everything that most Americans believed, uh but they supported it there was you know uh, of course, there was a the draft riot uh in the union, there was some resistance to the confederacy, but Americans are very quick uh to drop their qualms about uh so called big government, uh, when they feel there's an external threat. Mm-hmm. But that's a great question. Yeah. And and I, I you know I think that I I do think that this is one of the areas that the United States this is one of the ways in which the United States governs differently and this is uh one of those areas where in fact uh local militias do play um, uh, a much more important role than certainly in European counterpart, mm-hmm. at least for the first half of the 19th
2: century.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the issue of states' rights, because it's always
0: confused me a little bit. I, I hear, again, I'm not an American historian, uh, that the uh, Constitution, which, of course, I should, as a classical Republican, I should know by heart that if the uh, Constitution doesn't explicitly give uh, powers to the federal government, then they are uh, automatically arrogated uh, to the states, Okay, that's what I hear. I don't know if that's true. I, I think that's right. But, yeah. but throughout our history, we violated this principle. I mean, again and again and again. Yeah. I'm not wrong about that, am I? The, the, the federal government no. is constantly no, and, taking and, rights, and, rights
1: that aren't explicitly yeah.
0: mentioned in the Constitution.
1: Yeah, and, that's, and that generally comes through two important uh, powers. Well, one cause, one power. The power is the uh, ability to regulate interstate commerce, yeah. uh, which has been expanded really uh, over the course of how that power is defined. has been expanded over the course That's of It's the loophole uh, of all loopholes. And, well, you look at a loophole or, or, you know, you can look at it as a safety valve. <laughs> yeah, okay. but, um, but I think the important point to, to, to be made, the other, just to, to finish the other, is um uh, the general welfare clause, and how do you define general welfare? Yeah, uh, a lot ends up get, getting covered under general welfare. At any rate, what really matters is the very early um, determination and really uncontested uh, that the uh, Supreme Court has the right to decide these kinds of issues. So it wasn't clear that they had that right initially. It's why it was very hard to get people to serve on the Supreme Court uh, until Marshall did oh, really? and established the kind of permanent and sort of powerful party he did. Uh, it was considered, you know, why would I want to do that? Huh? Um, so, uh and, you know, John Jay was asked, so he said, are you kidding? I don't want to do that. You know. Um, so, is the Supreme Court establishes the right to make these uh decisions and yeah the uh uh you, you could say judiciously so to speak uh the power um granted to the national government is expanded i think one of the uh, crucial uh decisions uh, that is made is the, the decision to um um reinforce uh, the U.S. Bank. Another one is the decision to support the rights of those who would do interstate commerce over states' ability to regulate that interstate commerce. That first happens with travel and then mm-hmm. later on uh, it happens with the first emerging, this is the 1850s I think, was the first emerging national corporations, a singer-sewing machine, you know, states divide revenue by regulating these corporations, uh, uh, regulating their agents, imposing taxes on that. Uh, The Supreme Court cleared the way uh, for these national corporations to operate unfettered. Today, we take that for granted. Um, I I think most importantly, and very relevant today, uh, is that by the end of the 19th century, the Supreme Court handed to these corporations a bundle of rights that treated them as persons Mm -hmm. before the law. Uh, Now the um, uh, Citizens United decision giving corporations First Amendment rights to participate in elections Mm -hmm. and write checks uh, in an unfettered way. Uh, That's a a First Amendment right. In the 19th century, corporations were formally granted the status of personhood through the 14th Amendment, and that is one of the most deeply ironic parts of the story (laughs) I tell. Uh, Just for your listeners, the 14th Amendment, which is a Civil War amendment drafted to protect uh, freedmen, the freed slaves, uh, and give them... Due process under the law.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Well, the first people, so-called people, that that due process clause is applied to in the Santa Clara decision in 1886 uh, is a railroad corporation. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a you know a long precedent to this recent Citizens United Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. on treating corporations as persons. Uh, this has huge implications mm-hmm. uh, for the development of the kind of economy that we live in today, mm-hmm. uh, going all the way back to the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. Now, for the purposes of my book, which is really, you know, titled The Government Out of Sight, well, here's a classic example. By the early 20th century, Americans are thinking of corporations as natural entities, mm-hmm. Uh, It's kind of a natural part of the economy. Mm -hmm. But from day one, corporations were, well, as John Marshall said in the early 19th century, they're creatures of legislation. They're created by government. They're created by law. Uh, And you can't explain how corporations went from creatures of law to, quote, natural, without looking at a very activist Supreme Court Mm -hmm. part of government. Mm-hmm. And these are the ways in which Americans govern that often get left out of the textbook. You get left out of textbooks that these contributions to creating a national economy, a national economy built around corporations, um, you can't understand that without looking at a extraordinarily activist court in the late 19th century, that very period of time when Supposedly, everyone subscribed to let's say and some should
0: mentioned pants off. Yeah, I wanted to. We're about out of time, but I wanted to um, try a little experiment, I guess. And I, I was, I was thinking about uh, the way I, as a sort of novice historian of America, and I guess the world in general, understand what we might call the American way of federal government. You know, we talk about the American way of war, and the American way of welfare, and the American way of this and that, um, but. Again, to put it in the comparative perspective, when the Russians, for example, who I studied for uh, decades now, want to create something in a locality, they create an institution in Moscow and they send it out to do a job uh, that they have defined. They really do do it that way or they did. Now, in the 19th century, after they had read Tocqueville, they became Gaga and I think many European countries did about local government and they started to shift a little bit the way in which they did things and they started to ape what they thought the Americans were doing and this is what they did. They – began to institute what are really what I think we would call a system of block grants we still have block grants for our federal welfare system which is administered on the state level if I'm not incorrect is is built on block grants so you're they absolutely created right. No, you're absolutely right yeah they created it they created basically a system of they created local government and they said all right you you get these things done a through Z and we're gonna give you money we don't care how you do it it seems to me that really is kind of the way that is the American way of government is is to say to the the localities and the counties and the states, we're not going to interfere with the way you do this, but if you uh, follow our lead, we will subsidize it. And one of the reasons I mention this is because here in Iowa we had a horrible flood two years ago, and, um, uh, you know, it, it decimated our campus and uh, put a lot of Iowans out on the street, and it destroyed, you know, Cedar Rapids, for example. But I can tell you that uh, it's largely due to the federal government and monies from the federal government that we are Rebuilding, But the federal government didn't come in and right. say, here, we want you to build this here. They said, we're going to give you this money, and you do what you want with it. Now, we're going to watch, but you do what you want with it. Um, and I think that yeah, really uh, subsidizes uh, is kind of the key word here.
1: Subsidies subsidies are a, a key word. I mean, key verbs are subsidize. Another key verb is coordinate. Another key verb is stimulate. And. Um, this is, in fact, as you put it, the distinctively American way of governance. Uh, but the examples that you're talking about are examples where, in fact, state and local infrastructure already exists. Yeah, that's, that's right. exactly exactly uh, how the national government operated, where there were such entities. But, again, the, I, I think the biggest thing <laughs> that... I learned in writing this book is, you know, the development, uh, the political and economic development of this country was not inevitable, and there were a lot of spaces where those states and localities didn't exist. Yeah, And that the national government, uh, whether it's clearing uh, Indians, surveying the land, or creating a postal service, Uh, really had to do a lot of things from scratch. And where we really see that play out in the second part of the 19th century, and I I, I know we have to stop soon, so I won't go into detail, but where we really see it playing out is in what today we call the Far West. Uh, We see it in the Department of Interior. We see it in the United States Forest. Service when, mm-hmm. uh, sent out in the early 20th century. We see it in the irrigation programs. We see the unfettered direct contact between the national government that run in Washington and those people living out in the far mm-hmm. west. Mm-hmm. Why is that? That's because there aren't local institutions to fight forest fires or to build irrigation systems. So, you know, Americans would always prefer to do things through intermediaries. They're very distrustful, of distant power. Mm-hmm. And they never turn to the national government directly or nakedly when they don't have to. Mm-hmm. But when it's a matter of economic development, when it's a matter of national security, um, they do. <laughs> if That's the only game in town.
0: Yeah. No. And I, I that,
1: think that's very much that's very much the story of the 19th century, as I see it.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, I think it's a t- it's an absolutely terrific point, and it puts a lot of the things that are and you point this out in the book. It puts a lot of the things that we're doing today, kind of unconsciously, into a different perspective. So when we give, for example, as Clinton did, these block grants to uh, to the states in order to administer a new style of welfare program, this really does harken back to that. Uh, that tradition, or you Absolutely. know, to, to be a little bit more controversial, you know, for example, the use of military contractors, these Blackwaters and things like this. You know, that's
1: I mean, it's a, a great. This that, is the way we do a great it. Great example. Yeah, I mean, it, and and even you know, I mean, my my first book was about commercial nuclear power, and, <laughs> and I, I, I coined this term called the pro ministrator state right. about the you know the, the merger of. Professionals and administration and this Cold War environment, yeah. and uh, we've had those. We've had those moments. But even at the height of what I would call our most statist moments in our history, uh, roughly the period from '47 to uh, you know certainly through the mid-1950s, yeah, even at the height of that, the into place when it came to military, the military a uh, very decentralized system built around contractors yep. built around
0: private contractors well that's a terrific point and it's a uh, we, we really have run out of time, we've taken up a huge amount of your time Brian and I appreciate it, um, let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history and that is what is your next project what are you working on now
1: well I'm working on two projects uh, in of course different centuries, but at least they're the 20th and the 21st century. Uh, the more proximate uh, project is early 20th century. It's about Gifford Pinchot, who introduced conservation, the idea of conservation to the United States. He was Teddy Roosevelt's chief forester and very important figure in the progressive era. And I, I'm really using the professional life of Pinchot to talk about Uh, in a band on the tangled roots of the modern American state. Uh, I'm actually going to write the first part of that book that I set out to write 10 years ago. (laughs) I (laughs) got sidetracked in the 19th century, so I don't give up. (laughs) And in in the other book, for the first time in my life, uh, I'm going to try to actually use a course that I teach to inform uh, a book project and the course i teach is called digitizing america 1980 to the present Mm -hmm. and i want to i want to look at the way digital technology has reshaped uh politics uh, during that very period of 1980
2: that's a great
0: that's a great project well I, i i look forward to talking to you again about those projects um and uh And having you back on the show. Let me tell our listeners we've had Brian Ballow on the show today, and the book is A Government Out of Sight, The Mystery of National Authority in 19th Century America. I should also say that Brian, together with a couple of his colleagues, hosts a terrific radio show called Backstory with the American History Guys. That's the name, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Backstory with the American History Guys, you uh, can get it on your local NPR station. And if that's false and you can't, you should call your local NPR station and say, why the hell isn't this on my local NPR station? And then you can listen to Brian and his friends. May I give them our website? Oh, absolutely, yes. What is the website? It's it's backstoryradio.org. Backstoryradio.org. So go there and, um, and you know, as I say, listen in. You probably have podcasts and stuff people can listen to. And,
1: uh, and- you do, uh, they can go to iPod, I, iTunes, uh-huh. download, or they can go to Backstoryradio.org and uh, download any show that we've done.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Brian, thank you very much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye to an interview with Brian Ballow about his new book, A Government Out of Sight, The Mystery of National Authority in 19th Century America. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week.